fattened uh, life farm, such as a variety of corn or cotton or any of the other uh, basic necessities of life, then you essentially have control and power over the people. It gives you the opportunity for a monopoly, and that's what we see in the seed business. A lot of our areas, we can't get non-GMO. It's just not available. The market share has been taken so much by the genetically engineered varieties. All of those varieties originated in the public square. And yet, when it comes to patenting, they put the patent on it and it becomes their exclusive property. If you read that tech agreement, you don't even have the right to... It's not even your crop that you're producing. It's just leased to you by the company. And yet you have to sign an agreement that if there's any liability that comes from that crop, from its toxicity or anything else, in the, either from past use or current use or the future use, you have to agree to assume the full responsibility and to waive that responsibility to the company. Well, if it's such a great thing, why do you have to have that in the tech agreement? It's really a Trojan horse. Hi, this is Bruce Lipton, and you're listening to Green Planet FM. Kia greetings, and welcome to Green Planet FM 104.6. I am Tim Lynch, and I trust that you are doing well. I invite you to stay with me over the next hour as we discuss and find ways to take care of our unique and magnificent Green Planet Earth. Here we are today, doing our very best to live to our fullest potential and also to live healthily. There's no doubt the key to life is having a healthy body and soul and that we be full of energy and that allows us to accomplish so many things in our everyday life. Been very fortunate to live in New Zealand that we are lucky that we can source quality food and water and that many of my friends have extremely robust and healthy organic gardens and that to be able to harvest our food and within 20 minutes be eating this abundance either raw or cooked, knowing that it is nutrient-dense, being full of minerals and vitamins due to the soil being rich in either compost, humus or seaweed, that we exuberantly know we are feeding our body temple the best nutrients possible, helps us to feel at ease in the world and with clear air and pure, unsanitized deep spring water, These are forerunners to a very healthy existence. That when we are warm-hearted and open-minded, with a very questioning and curious countenance, that continually causes us to wonder, how does a human being live on a planet? This allows us to connect with family, friends and community, to initiate closer ties, to find ways to make sure we have a future that will benefit all children and grandchildren wherever they may be. Yet, we have to be alert. Eternal vigilance is now an imperative. So what is there to be so wary of? Believe me, when we realize that our garden has been invaded by an imposter, we realize that glyphosate and Roundup 
are definitely not here for the benefit of the ecology, the biosphere and the future of all children. This following interview by an 80-year-old retired U.S. Army colonel and emeritus professor will assist our understanding of the challenges that we have to address. In the studio today, I have from the USA, Professor Don Huber, originally from the University of Idaho and Purdue University. He is a world-renowned researcher into the micro-world, as well as a teacher with 55 years' experience specializing in plant pathology, epidemiology, and control of soil-borne pathogens, microbiology, ecology, and nutrient-herbicide disease interactions. It's a very, very substantial work, and he's also an intellectual heavyweight with a lifetime of experience and active engagement with the chemical industry and supporting industrial institutions. And Don is here in New Zealand because he delivers a powerful testimony of how our society has shifted to the degree that after a lifetime of learning, we have got it in many ways so wrong. And he is here to offer up his knowledge, offer up his wisdom so that we can, as a humanity, shift our attention to living closely in community and allowing love to experience itself in the greater global community. So, Kiora, welcome to Aitearoa, New Zealand, Don. Well, thank you, Tim. It's an honor to be here. Very beautiful country, and I tell you, the hospitality has really been excellent. I just marvel at, at the environment that you have. I see the challenges that you also have, but we have to realize that agriculture is a basic infrastructure of any society and if we don't protect that if we don't honor it and respect it then we lose that that is very difficult to recover and you're in a very unique position in New Zealand you have an environment that is still fairly pristine by world standards have a population that still has some respect for nature and for the interaction of nature, but you also have a tremendous amount of pressure from the political arena and the international arena to come along and join the crowd. It's kind of like going to happy hour, (laughs) and happy hour always doesn't end so happy. Yes, well, it's really interesting, Don. I was brought up on a dairy farm, and I remember one day out in the paddocks, and Dad had all these pegs spread out in a grid. And I said, what are those for? And he said, oh, well, it's the fertilizer companies come in, and they're putting all these chemicals over the soil in these particular areas, and each has got a different chemical, and we're testing. And I said, gee, that's, that's strange. And he said, yes, he said... Farming is becoming too scientific for me. And can you talk a little bit about where we have sort of focused on chemicals and we have lost our way in the natural process? Well, it's easy to get enamored by the bells and whistles and the kind of flashing lights and the new things on some piece of equipment or some... uh, fad that comes in, it becomes a religion pretty soon so that you're a heretic if you haven't joined, if you haven't moved in that direction people look down on you uh, have to be able to sit next to your neighbor in church and that's kind of the way it's become with the weed you're a heretic if you have a weed but there's a purpose for those weeds to be there 
a reason for it. And we need to remember that in agriculture, we're really managing an ecology. It's a stewardship process. And if we'll manage that, that ecology works very well, supports us very effectively. We have an abundance of the necessities and also the nutrition and opportunities that we need for a healthy and a happy life. If we abuse it, if we get off into a tangent, as we do many times now, following the, the flashing lights rather than the common sense and the integrative power of those ecological principles that are going to hold true regardless of how far we go or how long we uh, might go astray, there's an accountability. And it's that accountability that kind of brings me back to a concern, but also uh, an optimism that for all the scientific progress that we make, we know we also make some mistakes. And if we'll recognize those mistakes, then we can use it to our betterment and our good and that stewardship role that we all have with nature and especially with our farming system. This is interesting because we've got Isaac Newton and his third law of motion, which for every action there is an opposite and equal reaction. And we just don't know how this plays out. And even though we've moved into the quantum realms, this old Newtonian idea or not ideas statement is really true today and we're seeing cancer skyrocket at the moment and we're knowing that children are suffering from so many allergies and I put it down to the fact there that we're disconnected from the earth. It's true. We're abusing the system. Spent a lot of my time in bioterrorism and that aspect of trying to understand how those disruptions occur how easy they can occur and many of the things we're doing today are essentially those things that during the Cold War we would have considered a direct violation of the principles for agricultural security. Everything starts, as Isaiah said, 800 B.C. when he recognized that all flesh is grass. Well, it all starts in the soil. That's the earth we were made of, some pretty good earth. And, but that's the health of the soil is critical for having healthy plants and healthy people and animals. As I do my research, conduct it, as I see others research, we see the deterioration in that because we've forgotten some of the old principles that used to govern that management process in the ecology. As we get back to those, we can recover it, and that's why I kind of exciting to be here in New Zealand because you've hung on to a lot of those principles, your organic principles that you employ in a lot of the world. We've forgotten that 70 years ago, everything was organic. That's correct. And you say, well, you know, farmers today will say, well, I don't know how to farm if I don't have all these chemicals. I'm used to having uh, all the stinger missiles in my armory and arsenal and uh, gee if you take those away what do I do? How do I defend myself? Well it's a matter of remembering that it's a system 
It's not a bunch of stinger missiles going out there. It's a system that is managed and brought together. And that system, if you look at the puzzle, you can tell when you get the round end of the puzzle piece in a square hole. If you just keep your head in the sand and keep going the same direction or thinking that you can bully and force the system in, it never works. just creates more confusion, more frayed edges, and a greater loss of opportunity for everybody that's involved. We haven't really got into the microflora of the soil. There's no understanding. I hear one farmer, he talks about that he's got an ecological platform where he's got his cows eating grass. He's classified the soil now as a platform, which is just computer geek talk. I mean, the verdant, luxurious soil and the bacteria and the fungi in the soil, I mean, it's powerful. It's, it's like a, a nervous system. Well, your soil is a living entity. It's not just dirt. It's not just sitting out there and, and dust until you get it on the kitchen floor. And the environment and the system that, that we live in, it's a very dynamic living system. Every time you step on an acre of soil, you're stepping on about 10 and up to 20 tons of living matter so that it changes. It's sensitive to the chemicals, it's sensitive to the environment, sensitive to the other abusive practices that we might perform. doesn't mean that they're all irreversible, but it means that if we get off track, we need to get back, and the sooner we get back, the greater harmony we'll have and the greater overall health that we'll see in the system that we're a part of. Yes, this is where we, as a country, we can really lead, and this is why you're also down here, Don, because you have the knowledge, and as you have been traveling the country, particularly in the, the Napier, Hawke's Bay area, They've gone organic and biodynamic, and there's a keen upsurge in seeing themselves as part of a living system. No question that you have the opportunity in New Zealand to be an ensign to the world. You haven't contaminated a lot of your soils. You have some excessive chemical use in some of the areas. I see that. I see the lack of knowledge of what that's doing. It makes life easier in some respects, but if you look at it in a longer-term process, the impact that it has on the individual and the family and the society doesn't make life easier. But in New Zealand, you have beautiful environment, an environment where you have an interest in maintaining that working relationship with the soil you have the opportunity to do that and to be uh, really a source of supply and capitalize on some value-added aspects that you have in the organic and in the nutrient density that you can provide that the rest of the world needs we see some little bits and pieces in other areas but I can tell you that there's overt attempt in many areas of the world to destroy that opportunity. There's a desire for monopoly, a desire for control and for power. 
without regard to the overall consequences of those practices that we're seeing. We see the increased vulnerability, and a lot of it's because people have forgotten what you have here and forgotten that harmony that can come and how we used to produce our high-density crops, those crops where we didn't have to worry about inflammatory bowel disease and end-stage kidney disease and diabetes, the extreme epidemics that we're seeing in the states and other industrialized countries. You haven't had the experience because you've maintained that opportunity for high-nutrient-dense food and products for your animals. That's the message and that's the information that the world needs, especially as we look at a growing population. I believe that there's no problem in meeting the projected global needs. We're only harvesting 25 or 30 percent of the genetic potential of our best crop. It's a matter of being willing to take some time and energy. doesn't come free. And then developing that expression of that genetic material and it can all be done in a traditional breeding manner rather than in that virus type approach that we see with the genetic engineering where we have no idea what the unintended consequences that occur with that are and if we would get back and just devote a portion of the time and effort resources that we have to recognizing that the system's all there for us. It's a matter of us being willing to work with the system rather than trying to fight it and assume that we can have all of these silver bullets to solve all the problems rather than working them out so that we have that harmony in the system. I think one of the big things is to slow down. I was back at my school reunion, the 100-year school reunion, not so long ago, and all the people in that particular rural area had farms of about 100 acres to 125, 150 acres. Now the farms are something like about 800 acres. But what's happened is that all the other small farms have been amalgamated into one big farm there are far less families in the area and so the whole area population-wise is actually collapsing because there's nobody there and the school that I went to there was about 125 children at the primary school it dropped down to 37 people at the school and this is why big is not necessarily best true when we look on uh, the sociological aspects and impact that that has. Uh, You lose stability. You lose that tradition from the family. If you're farming 800 acres or 1,000 acres, that's all you get done. You don't have time to interact. You don't have time to chat with your neighbors hardly. You, You may take a few minutes and go in and have a cup of coffee and that for some breakfast or something but you're not there long enough to interact we don't have that interacting labor relationship that we used to have i really enjoyed the old thrasher 
young enough that it was probably more for the meals that everybody brought in than it was for the sociality that we got from everybody working together. But the tools are there for us, and a lot of these things are tools that if we use them, uh, we don't have to stay in the horse and buggy days. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about managing the ecology and bringing harmony into the system so that everything grows in a magnitude that meets the needs of the society and the individual. But the individual has the opportunity to achieve that full potential and measure of their creation as we provide the opportunity in the soils and to our animals for it to do the same thing. We can grow together. We can use the use the tools, but we see the what we're doing now is extreme abuse. I have a number of my years and my life have been spent again in the looking at the bioterrorism aspects. And one of the things that we felt was a critical component of our defense was diversity, making sure that we didn't have all of our uh, crop species, just one gene. We, we experienced that in 1970 and 71, where we had 70% of our corn hybrids with the Texas male sterile gene. Now, they differed in other characteristics, but that male sterile gene, where we never had a problem for years before, we had one fungus that developed a mutation so that it preferred that gene. That meant that all 70 of our 70% of our hybrids were all extremely susceptible to that particular disease. Now we don't do it with the male sterile, we do it with the genetic engineering. So that it's not 70%, we don't have 30% to recover from. We have 98% of our soybeans, 70% of our corn, 100% of our sugar beet and cotton are all one gene or two gene characteristics and those genes are all to promote disease susceptibility not resistance there are none of them that are designed or engineered for greater disease resistance every one of them have to be more susceptible to the diseases so that you can get expression of the genetically engineered trait that's the Mode of action for some of our chemicals, like glyphosate. Its whole mode of action is to give the plants a bad case of AIDS. Then they're susceptible to all the soil-borne pathogens, and that's how Roundup, for instance, works, is to destroy the disease resistance of those plants that receive it that haven't been engineered with an alternative. But all it would take is just one simple mutation to make cotton, alfalfa, corn, soybeans, canola, all of those with Roundup Ready gene, totally susceptible to a very severe disease. Now, we see a number of diseases that actually we've documented over 40 diseases now that are much more intense with the glyphosate herbicide because of that increased disease susceptibility. 
that leaves us extremely vulnerable from a violent terrorist event or for a natural event, as we saw with the northern corn leaf blight epidemic in 70 and 71. The difference is in 70 and 71, we had 30% of our hybrids that we could fall back on to carry us through until we straightened the system out and got the program back into a harmony type of a situation and realized that you can't just do it by shooting silver bullets. Yeah, this is a horror story really, Don, because this is essentially the big wave that's wanting to come across our planet at the moment. And we know we've, there's lots of problems around glyphosate. Well, I've done some interesting interviews recently with some very articulate people who have an understanding of what we're doing. But what sort of mind would really want to think that way? Well, it's, it's probably powered by greed and the desire for power. A lot of these areas of basic research that we used to be looking at soil microbial ecology and biological control and a lot of those areas they've just gone by the wayside because everybody said there's more money in the genetic engineering and therefore that's where it's all gone if you can patent a life farm such as a variety of corn or cotton or any of the other uh, basic necessities of life Then you essentially have control and power over the people. It gives you the opportunity for a monopoly, and that's what we see in the seed business. A lot of our areas, we can't get non-GMO. It's just not available. The market share has been taken so much by the genetically engineered varieties. All of those varieties originated in the public square, and yet when it comes to patenting they put the patent on it and it becomes their exclusive property if you read that tech agreement you don't even have the right it's not even your crop that you're producing it's just leased to you by the company and yet you have to sign an agreement that if there's any liability that comes from that crop from its toxicity or anything else in the either from past use or current use or the future use, you have to agree to assume the full responsibility and to waive that responsibility to the company. Well, if it's such a great thing, why do you have to have that in the tech agreement? It's really a Trojan's horse in that aspect of vulnerability for our entire system. And again, agriculture is a basic infrastructure for any society. You have to have carbohydrate, you have to have protein, you have to have fat. You have to have minerals and vitamins. Without that, the individual doesn't exist. And so when you start patenting it and controlling that in that power manner that we're seeing without any liability or restrictions or control, it leads to the downfall of the society. Yes, we have a situation here in New Zealand, Don, where certain interests, shall we say, are wanting to get along with the present government and get, say, GE potatoes into New Zealand. This is a big one at present. And if there is any problems, it's not the 
the company or the corporation that have to clean the mess up. It's put on the people. And the people maybe have no idea that it's even happening. And this is what I cannot understand is how the so-called lawyers and the what I'd call best practice and the precautionary approach. This doesn't seem to be part of the equation anymore. Well, you mentioned the precautionary principle that's been thrown out the window. Used to be a very valid, very viable aspect in risk management. There's no consideration for it at all. One of the examples... uh, we have now before us is the escape of creeping bent grass, Roundup Ready, engineered. And that grass, which was used primarily for, or designed primarily for golf courses, those genes are extremely promiscuous. They move along in the wind. They can be picked up by microorganisms in the soil and decomposing roots. And then they can re-engineer. We can even have them picked up by our GI tract microorganisms so that we become our own pesticide factory when it comes to the BT insecticide toxin. So that we have the situation now where two companies got together, developed a Roundup Ready creeping bent grass. You can guess what the companies are. Yes. And... Uh, they went to Oregon State University and said, we'd like to have some field trials on uh, on this grass, this new silver bullet that we're going to have for the turf industry. And uh, Oregon State was smart enough to say, not on our property. <laughs> said, yes. there's no way you can ever contain it. Yes. It's got to move in the wind. It hybridizes with other grasses readily. And how are you going to pull it back? And that's the situation. It got loose from two small research locations, private locations. It's now endemic in Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. It's onto the islands in the Snake River and moving out in the Pacific. It'll be a worldwide problem. And the uh, problem comes because it plugs up your irrigation systems, your drainage systems. You end up with an extremely invasive weed that should be labeled as an invasive weed. And yet you ask APHIS, our USDA regulatory agency, to take action on that. And they said, well, we've been mandating that the company spend $10 million over the last 10 years to try and eradicate. But it's already become endemic, so... The solution to the problem is merely to deregulate it and make it a legal product. Well, what that does, then, it means that everybody who loses their living and livelihood because you have a genetically engineered grass and your non-GMO or your organic alfalfa that you're shipping to China, and China rejects it. They've already done that for us. And you see those situations totally irresponsible, scientifically uh, indefensible for that to go on. It should be labeled as an invasive weed like it is. And then that responsibility and the opportunity for at least some indemnification be provided to those who are impacted by it negatively. 
that's not the political approach. That's not the company approach. They don't want to assume any liability for the damage that they do to the system. And for every genetically engineered plant that is deregulated, there should be a threefold liability for indemnification. And let's see how far it goes then with those silver bullets that turn out to be time bombed waiting to to go off. We've seen that. We've been uh, in the States and South America. We've been using the genetically engineered plants long enough now that we see the deterioration of the soil. We see the increased disease problems in our plants. We see the health and uh, deterioration of health in our animals and our humans to the point that we're on the threshold literally of a major tsunami of health problems that I don't know how any society can address and can maintain a viable society in a human manner with the health problems that we see not just from cancer but from end-stage kidney from all of your array of inflammatory bowel type diseases, your celiac your Crohn's, your gluten intolerance, your leaky gut, all of those practices that very definitely life threatening and yet We've just buried our head in the sand and said, well, we don't understand what's causing it, so we can't do anything about it. And it's been coming along slowly enough now, it's kind of like the frog in the hot water. Yes. That our younger doctors, our younger veterinarians and plant pathologists and that say, well, gee, isn't this normal? No kidding. Had one of our uh, veterinarians that went over, uh, we are doing some research on some changes in fertility and that was some of our glyphosate-treated genetic materials and we wanted to see if the same thing was happening to people that we saw happening to pigs and chickens and goats and cattle and that uh, infertility and spontaneous abortion or miscarriage yes went over to the medical school and uh, this veterinarian uh, asked if they had some amniotic fluid or placenta or or, uh, cord from miscarried baby and the doctor just turned him off and said oh this happens so often that we just incinerate it we don't even want to bother the parents it's so uh, discouraging but said it's nothing it's just normal now for a woman to have four or five miscarriages before she can have a live birth now that's not normal but that's what's happened to our recognition of the role that we have in the ecology how that system should function in a very harmonious manner in a support role for everything that we do but when you disrupt the soil and disrupt your food supply and that basically, those basic necessities of life, nothing else can maintain its status either. And it's a downhill track, one that I have some real concern for. I have grandchildren and great-grandchildren that I would like them to have the same life and same uh, opportunities for health that I've enjoyed throughout my life. Yes. And... Uh, 
you can't be productive to society unless you do that. And so it's an opportunity that is on the fringe right now. Doesn't mean it has to be or it has to stay there. There are things we can do. The first thing is you have to recognize what your problem is. Now, one of the things you've done in New Zealand that I'd compliment you on is that at least you have labeling of your food supply. So you can make a choice. You don't always have the education for the people that tells them why you need to make a certain choice because you're not far enough down the track like we are that it becomes almost an everyday occurrence that you can just look around and find those instances in your family or in your neighbors or your associates where uh, you see the damage that's done. I sat in the Tumor Institute twice a month or so with my wife with her cancer and you just watch the community as they cycle through the system. 18, 19, 20-year-olds with breast cancer, testicular cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, all of those systems I consult in some other countries. One-fourth of the population in El Salvador is expected, uh, anticipated to be dead from end-stage kidney failure from exposure to glyphosate. We see what's happening in Sri Lanka. We see what's happening uh, with the microcephaly in Brazil from the uh, larvicide and from the extensive exposure to glyphosate. You see that all over the world. It's not an isolated incident uh, just to Canada and the United States. It's anywhere that the abuse occurs with these materials when it's when we forget that in agriculture, we're managing an ecology so that we can provide that healthy and nutritious food rather than just gain a little more of the almighty dollar. I'm speaking with Dr. Don Huber, who is an award-winning international scientist and professor emeritus of plant pathology at Purdue University, speaking on food integrity, the dangers of GMOs, and glyphosate of Roundup. And Dr. Huber has had 50 years of research and expertise in the area of plant pathology. He's also a reservist in the U.S. Army, having spent a lot of time researching bioterrorism. Yes, this is a horror story, Don, and one of the interesting things was, I think last May in the European Union, there was 41 Green MPs from 14 countries, I think it was, were tested for glyphosate in their urine. And every one of them had so much, three times the actual allowable standard for the European Union. And I would presume that those green MPs would be drinking the best of water and as much organic food as possible. And yet they were terribly contaminated. So this is where it's all happening. We are surrounded, aren't we? Yeah, we finally have three labs now that are willing to test for glyphosate and for the first breakdown product, the AMPA, usually stops right there. Problem is, it's one and a half times more toxic than the glyphosate, but at least they can test for it so we know if we have a problem. And 
the costs of that are, have dropped dramatically now that we have some of the new equipment and some of the new procedures. It's about $100 a sample, but it's well worth that for those of us that have had high exposure. And then you can really focus on uh, remediation aspects. And we're looking at the how do you remediate? And there are some bright spots on the on the uh, glad to that <laughs> uh, horizon here. When you look at the lifetime or a half life of glyphosate being as high as 22 years in the soil, you realize that the advertising that poof and it's gone isn't quite the correct answer for that. But we're seeing that with some biological cocktails, it's the degradation enzymes that are required aren't common in the environment because this is a synthetic product. But with a cocktail of about six different organisms, it can be eliminated. And some of those procedures and the initial research, at least, in the field trials are looking really promising to reduce that load and get it down uh, U.S. Geological Survey for Florida shows that many of those counties in Florida actually have over 4,200 pounds of glyphosate per square mile. That's almost like you're driving on it. Yes, like a carpet. So when you see the wide array of health effects of this very powerful mineral chelator that then disrupts the physiology of everything in life. The only living things that, well, don't know of any living thing that's not affected by it. You have all of your ecology that's influenced, your invertebrates, your bees, your earthworms, fish, our bacteria, fish certainly. And then you realize that it's become an extreme pollutant. Just had scientists at the University of Wisconsin been doing surveys on eutrophication of Lake Erie. They found that one-third of a pound of phosphorus in Lake Erie comes in for every acre of ground that's in the watershed. Lots of few million acres that come in, and you can anticipate then why we have a green Lake Erie with dead carp and dead bluegill and other fish in that lake because of the extreme eutrophication from this supposedly very benign and safe (laughs) uh, compound here that has been used as a silver bullet is a problem rather than recognizing that you can't do the same thing continuously without disturbing many other things that are essential for life. There's a, an adjuvant that's in glyphosate that's the real danger. And in some ways, glyphosate is like a red herring. You've got to have a look at the adjuvants to find out these are the killers, aren't they? Well, the adju- adjuvants, uh, POAE and yes. that type of thing, all make it easier for glyphosate to get into the plant. But when we're talking about eating the plant, we're talking about the glyphosate itself because the surfactants don't go there. So the surfactants, if you're drinking water, impact on fish, they'll multiply the effect of the glyphosate up to a thousand times. 
But from a food standpoint, where we're seeing increase in cancer, we have a lawsuit in California right now, non-Hodges lymphoma, a thousand plaintiffs in that one lawsuit alone. We have several other lawsuits just waiting in the wings. But those are all from the glyphosate active ingredient in Roundup rather than the full Roundup. Now, the U.S. Geological Survey says, well, we're finding glyphosate in the air, Roundup, both. We find it in surface waters, runoff. We find it in well waters and some deep well waters because it's a highly water-soluble compound that moves wherever the water goes. It's also a systemic compound in animal and human and plant tissues so that that's one of the things that's made it such a powerful herbicide you can just kind of squirt it at the plant and it distributes itself throughout the plant then so that it has to move down into the root system though in order for it to be an herbicide because all it does is give the plant a bad case of AIDS destroys or shuts down the plant's defense mechanism so that then all of the soil organisms are invited to dinner. That's why it takes five or six or ten days for a plant to die with it because it's those soil-borne organisms that are the actual herbicidal mode of action for it. But you have the two factors that are involved. The one that makes it more the adjuvants certainly make it more readily taken up by the plant and you have their toxicity then if we're talking about a water source or an an external source of contact with the glyphosate but the glyphosate itself is a very potent carcinogen very potent factor in shutting down the defense mechanisms in plants and animals so we say well humans don't have the and animals don't have the shikimate pathway but glyphosate actually uh, down regulates 291 known enzymes so it's not just that one pathway that's impacted but you and I are very dependent on that pathway we may not have it in our muscle tissue and some of those areas But that eighth organ that we call our GI tract, all of those organisms can have the, or many of those beneficial organisms especially, do have that pathway, and they're very sensitive to glyphosate. So that our GI tract determines our immunity. It determines our mental state because all the neurological chemicals are produced in your GI tract. When you say GI tract, elementary canal. That's your elementary canal, your stomach and your intestines and your colon. Yes. And you look at the study with the pigs, which have very similar physiology to what we have, and you see that deterioration of, of the intestinal lining. You only have one cell layer there to, to protect you from leaky gut. And so... Those organisms that protect that layer are critically important 
but they're all very sensitive to glyphosate. So with less than a tenth of a part per million in our food, you destroy those organisms, and then the Clostridium and the E. coli and the Listeria and all the pathogens then don't have any competition, and so they move ahead, and we see the tremendous health impact that we're seeing now, not just from cancer, but colon problems there. Yes, so my concern is developing embryos in mums, and I have heard, and from the horse's mouth here in New Zealand, that some farmers are going and spraying pastures because they want to actually put another cash crop in afterwards. They're spraying the pasture, leafy grass, you know, rye grass, clover, whatever, and they can leave it for four days and then allow their cows to come in and eat it. And, and my question is, okay, the cows are taking this in. Is the milk affected? Because that milk goes into the New Zealand milk supply where cheese, milk powder, and butter is made. No question. When you sample those products after they've done that, 80% of that glyphosate that, well, in fact, almost 100% of the glyphosate that is sprayed on that plant stays in the plant. It, there's nothing in the plant that degrades glyphosate. So that as a cow eats it, it bioaccumulates. The tissues that it bioaccumulates are the, the brain, the heart, the liver, the bones, the kidneys, and the milk. So that you find uh, that area in there. In fact, what you'll find is in your cheese making, that's a fermentive process. And quite often they can't even get it to, to proceed because there's so much glyphosate that it's killed off the organisms. We see that with our brewing industry. And we wanted to get some more test strips for glyphosate here uh, two years ago, the company said, oh, we've got a six-month backlog. And we said, well, why so long? They said, the brewing industry has to check every load of malt barley that comes in because they sprayed it with glyphosate and it kills off the brewing process, the fermentation process, because the Saccharomyces and those organisms are very sensitive to it. So... You know, Germans aren't very happy about finding glyphosate in their beer. Too right. <laughs> because one thing the Germans are good about is that they want natural beers. Yep. Natural beers. Yes, this is astounding information. So I thank you so much for illuminating New Zealanders and anybody else who wants to tap in via the web. We basically need a global class action to take these corporations to court and you know the world court the hague i mean i haven't had much faith really in the hague and it sounds good but what we really need is some very courageous people to come forward and see if we can take our children's lives and say look to the children we're standing up for you we are going to make sure that we're going to clean this pandora's box up uh, no question, we did have the Monsanto Tribunal here last year, and it was a great opportunity to start moving in that direction. It didn't have the authority for action, but at least start setting a legal framework for a movement in this direction. 
the California lawsuit for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I think the next one will large lawsuit after this one's uh, settled. And I think there are people are putting odds about 98% in favor of settling or probability of winning that lawsuit. That uh, I think the next one will probably end stage kidney failure or it may be for the eight or nine inflammatory bowel diseases that are very quite well documented now being associated with that gut dysbiosis from the patented antibiotic activity of glyphosate against those beneficial organisms. Oh, this is really, really powerful stuff. We have to mobilize New Zealanders and mobilize mothers and their husbands. They've got to get the we've got to get the, the fathers out there being the warrior on the edge of the village, making sure that this doesn't come into the game. And I'm you know, we're fortunate at many levels, but on another level too, the average age for New Zealand dairy farmers now is nearly sixty nine years of age. And it's very much like that for many farmers in America and Australia and Britain. And they can't hold the line for much longer, Don. We need young people to come in because what's happening, the young people think, oh, gee, it's too big an uh, operation for me to... It's a 24-7 operation, and I want to live. In the meantime, hovering above all these farms are the corporations who are wanting to buy up these farms so that then they can start coming in and doing scientific farming, i.e. glyphosate. GE and GMO. So we are in a challenging moment, aren't we? Yes, and the concern is that the GE is an irreversible process as we see with creeping bent grass, as we see with a lot of these other systems. We know how to get them out there. We have no way to retrieve them. And they're very, those genes are very promiscuous. They move uh, interspecies wise. It's not just a species limitation because again it's more like a virus infection than a breeding program in that oh yes well have you been able to get some support here in new zealand from our scientists here bearing in mind a lot of scientists uh, have already gone over to what i say is the dark side when we really need them to come back on the light into the light side and say i'm here for the human race uh received a very warm reception here in in New Zealand because I think many of you at least recognize that you're in a unique position here to to be an ensign to the world. You have an opportunity for some value added. The world's seeing the problems with the GE and with the other systems so that they're willing to compensate you for that hard work that it takes to produce that high-density, nutritious, and safe food so that you just have to maintain it. You have to be able to educate the people as a whole. You know, we only have 1% of our total population involved in production agriculture anymore so that there's a tremendous knowledge lag or void in that as far as where their food comes from, what it takes to get their food, and what that quality should be so that you're unique because you haven't succumbed to that. People say, well, New Zealand's been a little slow to, to <laughs> grasp the, the new technology. Yes. 
sometimes that's a blessing. You have to be careful of what you wish for. <laughs> and uh, you have that opportunity again to provide many of those critical needs for the world through your own production and the beautiful environment that you have here, but also to help other nations reverse the damage that's being done and get back into good nutrition, good healthy, safe food. Yes, well, China at the moment is wanting to mobilize its 1.4 billion population to grow trees. They've got a gigantic uh, program that they're setting out until 2040. If we mobilize the human race to take care of the garden and stop fighting over the turf and what we're going to do with the turf is start cooperating. It's cooperation and working together, isn't it? It is, and I wish you success. I really appreciate the opportunity to visit and share part of my 55 years of research, And but I certainly encourage you to hold the line and keep doing the great things you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Don. This is excellent. Greatly appreciate your time here, and I wish you every success from now on. Thanks, Tim. I have been speaking with Dr. Don Huber, who is an award-winning international scientist and professor emeritus of plant pathology at Purdue University, speaking on food integrity, the dangers of GMOs, and glyphosate of Roundup. And Dr. Huber has had 50 years of research and expertise in the area of plant pathology. He's also a reservist in the U.S. Army, holding the rank of colonel, having spent a lot of time researching bioterrorism. And as an 80-year-old civic responsible leader, you can do a search on YouTube and see him and hear him presenting in person. I invite you to be able to come to greenplanetfm.com where we have over 400 interviews in our database which you can readily download and listen to to be able to inspire yourself to become the change you want to see in the world and become involved in caring for your children and grandchildren's future. We are also on Facebook on greenplanetfm.com and ourplanet.org. Please come and love us. This is Tim Lynch. And or Lisa Eyre. And Liz Gunn. In the spirit of Aroha. Wishing you a wonderful week. We look forward to being with you next week. I say kia kaha and hairi ra.